welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Browning. ABCA members, we have a great programming opportunity this coming Wednesday night, December 2nd, as we host another webinar. This week's webinar is presented by the John Gordon Companies titled, Three Ways to Change Your Challenges and Opportunities. This webinar will be hosted by Julie Nee and Chad Busick this coming Wednesday night, December 2nd at 8 p.m., and it's free. This is a preview of the collaboration with the ABCA and the Power of Positive Leadership, which will then offer certification training sessions that Chad and Julie will lead exclusively for ABCA members later in December. Be sure to jump on the webinar and enjoy this interactive presentation. For more details, head to abca.org. Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Driveline Director of Youth Baseball, Devin Morgan. As a parent myself, I can relate to Devin's story and wanting what is best for your children. His relationship with Driveline started when he took his nine-year-old son into the facility to learn more about what they were doing there. That relationship has developed into him heading up Driveline's youth program and now their youth academy. They now have teams from high school age down to 9U. This episode is going to be a great resource for any parent or coach. We discuss the entire year calendar for training and competing. We head down a lot of different rabbit holes and I also ask a few questions as if I were a parent who has a younger child that is just getting interested in baseball. This is a great time to be a parent of a young baseball player and also a challenging time because of so much information out there. Devin and I drill down to what we feel is important from a training and competing standpoint. I'm also a proponent of the test and retest method that has built the philosophy at Driveline. Full disclosure, I also use J-bands and the plyo care balls with my son at a young age. I hope you come into this episode with an open mind and prepared to learn. Let's welcome Devin to the podcast. Here with Devin Morgan, Director of Youth Baseball at, at Driveline. Devin, thanks for coming on with me today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm super, super fired up to be here. We can hit on so much. I love that you guys are doing youth stuff now. I think we need it now more than ever. Can you talk about why you guys decided to, to get the Youth Academy going? Sure. Uh, you know, Driveline has done some version of youth training, I mean, essentially since we started, you know, um, like one of Kyle's first guys was Herbie Good. And when Kyle first started training Herbie, you know, and, and Herbie could probably tell the story better than I could, but, um, you know, he was a young kid who, is, as it's been told to me, as like the old like driveline, uh, the folklore, right? Uh, you know, Herbie was told by a local coach that he should quit baseball. And, um, you know, Herbie, I think as a person and, you know, his parents as a family had enough, I think, fortitude to be like, I'm not going to accept that. Um, and found, you know, and found Kyle and found Driveline. And, you know, if nothing else, I, I think Driveline functioned to give Herbie a pathway, you know, at our, uh, and, and like, and, and Herbie went from a guy, and, you know, and you can find this on like the old Driveline blogs from like 16 and 17 and, you know, way, way back in the archive. Um, Herbie went from a bigger kid who was kind of learning how to move his body into like, you know, I think at our pro day, uh, not this last one, but the year before, Herbie threw 99 with walking pneumonia or, or like, I mean, come on, you know, like, uh, so, so, so I say all that to say that it's not like we've just started doing youth training, you know, that stuff has taken place well before my tenure at driveline. And, and I just have the luxury of kind of like falling into a slot 
in a path that was led by guys that I even got there before. Um, but since I arrived at Driveline, you know, I, I kind of got increasingly involved in what we were doing on the youth side. And that typically took the format of like a longer duration youth training kind of around seasons, right? You know, we would have uh, off season training from like January through February or, or like January through February. And that's when I started. Um, but we would, but we would run into problems where, um, you know, the way that we would approach things in the facility might not necessarily match up with what the kids were given in a team environment because, because we didn't have our own team. Um, and, you know, and I dealt with that individually um, in the sense that my kids were, were on teams um, and some of those teams, like on their little league rec team while I was coaching those teams. So, you know, I was the one that was getting looked at as a space alien when we had like, you know, nine-year-olds doing J-bands um, and plyos. Um, but for, you know, for some, like my son's travel team, you know, he, um, we would. By the way, the I did the same thing with my son and his kids when they were growing up. I, I did the exact same thing. We, we did the J bands and we did a lot of the reverse throw stuff. We didn't yeah. do, do many of the forward stuff, but um, we did uh, all the D cell stuff and the dads loved it. You know, when I would be like, Hey, just hang with me here. I know this stuff is new and you haven't seen it before. And I think being a college coach at the time, you know, dad, if, if you're, if you're helping out at practice and I never coached the teams, but I would help out at practice. I think if you're, you know, you get a little bit of a credibility on, on the college side, if you're dealing with dads on that part yeah. of it, where you don't get as many funny looks or, or they're not going to look at you funny. They may talk about you behind your back, but right. they're, they're not going to look at you funny when you're doing it with their kid. Yeah. And, you know, the reception on the Little League side is very different because I think a lot of us parents, um, you know, we approach it just going like, well, you know, what was good enough for me back then is 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 good enough for, for my child. Um, I think a lot of times that gets problematic because nobody tends to ask the question of like, well, look, you know, I didn't go play D1 baseball. I, I didn't go get drafted. I, I have not you know, so like, why would I continue to do the same things that maybe didn't get me uh, all of the potential value out of my athletic career, but I digress. Um, we would do shorter duration use stuff and we just kind of ran into oftentimes a little bit of a natural conflict by, you know, from what we were doing versus what they were doing on the team side. Um, you know, with my son, we would just show up to the field a half hour early just to make sure we got our stuff in um, because then they can kind of do whatever they're doing on the team side. Um, but I just feel confident that like, he's ready to do whatever, you know, whatever it is, he's ready and he's hot and he's good to go. Um, hey, take us through that. So, so you get to the field with your son. What's that first 30 minutes look like for you guys? Sure. Um, so really it's just a, it's a pretty, a pretty constant routine of J bands, wrist weights and plyos. Um, you know, when he was younger, we would just do J bands and plyos. Um, just because I, when you say uh, younger, what age? Uh, when we first started doing them, like when he was nine. Um, so when I first started taking him down the driveline, it was January of uh, 18. Um, and he was just about to turn nine. He turned nine at the end of January. Um, so that was like our first exposure to it. And then, um, you know, I had the, I had the fortune of having Dan Oracle or Dan O'Coin, the Oracle, as we call him at driveline. Uh, was running our CR desk at the time and he had to run over to our warehouse and grab me bands and plyos and then run back to the training building and give them to me. Um, so that's where we started, just bands and plyos. So, you know, a pretty simple routine of J bands, uh, forward flies, reverse flies, uh, external rotation, internal rotation, um, the uh, tricep extensions and bicep curls. 
And then that's kind of just where we started. I know that a lot of guys kind of, I think older athletes kind of like, they'll go like the entire salad bar of J-band stuff and then kind of start to pick things. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't say that I've had, I, don't, I feel weird about saying that we've had success, but like that pretty pared down program of forward flies, reverse thrives, or internal rotations, external rotations, and biceps and triceps, we've gotten pretty good results out of there. It's fast, and I think it's actionable. You know, it, it gets us the things that we're looking for, which is blood flow and, you know, this kind of very amorphous thing that we talk about that's like muscle activation and stabilization, right? Uh, I mean, you talk to like really smart guys, like the, the guys in our strength staff, and I, if I said some, some voodoo stuff about muscle activation, they'd probably look at me funny. But like, generally, I think what we're getting at is trying to get the muscle to get a little bit of work, right? Well, um, you're getting it warm. Um, yep. You know, just like anything else, you're getting it warm. What about getting the body moving before J-bands or anything? Are you having him warm up a little bit and get, get the body moving before J-bands? Yeah, nowadays we we absolutely have some variation of a dynamic warm up in you know in uh, when you know two and a half almost three years ago I wasn't as smart so a lot of times uh, we would just hit the field um, bands and plyos nowadays you know we went down on Monday um, and just a little dynamic uh, dynamic warm up of like a little bit of man you know light jog skips for height uh, you know some um, bear crawls, uh, some short sprint work, like just trying to get the body moving. Um, and that's when it's just him and me on the field. You know, when we're doing in like a team setting, um, you might see a driveline academy team warming up with a soccer ball and we're playing like three on three small sided keep away uh, because I just want kids to move. I, I need your body to get active. I need you to start getting ready to like uh, produce force and accept force and change direction and stabilize and, and all those things we can do in a structured format or sometimes in an unstructured format. Well, the other thing is PE's cut out of most schools now, especially now with COVID, you know, PE yeah. is cut anyway. A lot of kids aren't playing multiple sports. So I think as youth coaches now, we need to add in the other sports for them with some warm up stuff because they're not getting as much of it now. Um, you know, school took care yeah. of, uh, I don't think people talk about that as much now as everybody used to get some of the multi-sport in PE class and you don't see it as much anymore. And it's, it's hurting kids. And the numbers actually show that, that, you know, as a youth coach, you got to try to bring some of that stuff back to them. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's kind of two pretty significant things to consider there, right? One is that, you know, I'm, I'm fairly old. So like, I remember like the pres presidential fitness challenge, right? Like that, I mean, that was the thing that we did. Um, Sit and reach killed me. Right? That was, I, that was the reason I never got the presidential <laughs> certificate was the sit and reach. I, it, was, yeah. it was the bane of my existence was the sit and reach. Yeah. So we had that, you know, and you're doing push-ups, you're climbing up a rope. Like, I mean, and, you know, and in my elementary school, I swear that our gym had like 50 foot ceilings and I'd climb to the top of that rope and be like, look down at the bottom. And, this seems kind of sketchy. Like there's no one that's going to catch me if I fall. But anyways, uh, you know, that was what we had. And the funny thing is, is you can actually find even older gym class routines on YouTube. If you Google like, uh, you know, 1960s gym class, you'll see these guys who to a man are like they're all yoked uh, and like you'll see them just ripping push-ups uh air squats they're climbing over walls they're climbing up ropes they're sprinting and like everybody's you know like 50s jacked um i think what i've seen with my kids uh you know the pe curriculum that they get 
I think it's more, I think a little bit just kind of movement based, like they're trying to help kids be less sedentary, right? Which, which I think is definitely a concern. Um, I, I think the, the problem as it pertains to kind of baseball is we know that there's like a high degree of transference between like guys that are strong and guys that have, you know, can transfer some of that into strength specific or sports specific output, right? It just, it, it's never a bad thing to be strong. Um, and because we're kind of out of the, the dark ages of the eighties where it's like, you know, we, we look down our nose at guys who were strong and be like, well, you can't move. And it's like, no, you know, some of these guys like Arnold Chapman is kind of like the current poster boy of a guy who's like really jacked um, and is also very good at sports. Um, but because kids don't get a lot of that programming, you know, we would do stuff just with my little league uh, kids and it'd be like, Hey, you know, we're going to finish practice with, you know, just one or two sets of 10 pushups. And you see sometimes kids who are, you know, 11 and 12 year old, 12 years old that can't get through that. Um, so, uh, and that's gotta be gratifying for you. Cause you know, you're, you're giving them things that are going to stay with them as they go forward. Sure. It, which kind of gets to a larger point, right. Of like, uh, especially in a recreational sense, I have no uh, delusion that like all the kids that I'm going to train are all going to go play high school baseball and they're all going to go college baseball and they're all going to play pro. Uh, what I would like to say with confidence, though, is that hopefully we can get them attracted to lifelong athletics and people that are just familiar with things that are good for their body. Uh, you know, if, if these kids, I mean, sure, if they get stronger, that's great. Uh, it's also a pretty good outcome if they start to like attach like, man, I feel really good when I exercise because there's like endorphins getting released and dopamine and, and going on in the brain. That's a good thing. And if I can combine both of those two things, um, and I can make time for it in my practice. Uh, sure, I'm probably helping myself out on the baseball side, but I also want to hope that I'm helping these kids just kind of like human development side, you know? So then um, with you and your son, then you get through the J-band circuit, and now now yeah. what? which plyo throws are you guys doing? Um, so we just, you know, we, we stick to the meat and potato stuff. Um, you know, for, for us, it's just kind of been executing that system um, with various degrees of kind of volume and intensity, depending on where we are um, in season. You know, if, if we're kind of getting ready for practice or getting ready for a game, um, specifically, it's the same stuff that's in our uh, free youth intro arm care PDF. You can just download it for free. Um, and it's got videos in there that kind of show you how to do the drills in addition to sets and reps. Um, but to kind of break down in a, in a broad sense we're doing, uh, we're doing some, we start with the reverse throw, right? Um, primarily with the reverse throw. Sure, there is a little bit of like counter rotation in the body that's involved with that. But really, really trying to do is strengthen the posture of your shoulder and all the stuff that's involved with exactly what you said. It's the deceleration stuff, right? We know that there are a lot of guys that get injured uh, in the deceleration phase post ball release. So it makes sense to to train that muscle group uh, broadly. And then more specifically, it's, it tends to be like a, a somewhat undertrained area for a lot of kids. Um, so it, it, we, we start with that, right? Then we move into, um, go ahead. Hey, with the lower half then, are you doing some reverse running and some of that stuff too in the warm up? Because um, same thing, you see it with the lower half too, you know, they're yeah. going to blow a hamstring out. Obviously, the younger kids, you don't have to worry as much. But, you know, they're going to blow a hammy out here. Just like, you know, if they blow a shoulder out, it's going to be on the backside. So with the legs, too. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for, like, the dynamic warm-up. And I've probably done more of this um, in soccer. I don't turn off. I also hey, am, like, I, a recreational soccer coach. I have a soccer background. <laughs> I played soccer all the way. Um, I, I quit after sophomore year of high school. But I loved soccer. Um, I yeah. did. So, 
yeah, stay with us, people. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm a huge proponent of soccer. I think it's done great things for – my son is a bigger kid and still has really good feet because he played yep. soccer for a long time. 100% and good feet and being able to change direction and having your head up and observe uh, the ball and the field and your defender. Uh, man, you do that stuff well, it's probably going to help you as a shortstop. You know, like it's going to help you as a, as a center fielder playing in the big grass. Um, and in my soccer routines, we definitely would, would have some reverse, um, some just some backwards running. Um, but yeah, uh, so the reverse throw to try to get that posterior shoulder going. Um, we would do the pivot pickoff, um, you know, and, and typically we started with that with the 450 gram blue ball. Um, when my son now at this stage, he, he does like to throw the 1000 gram green ball. Um, and really with that, we're just trying to get, you know, a really efficient elbow spiral. Um, or hand spiral, depending on what side of that debate you want to land on. Um, and obviously kind of focus on some counter rotation, right? And, uh, and I think the reverse throw and the pivot pickoff are, are great examples of kind of like the way that the drill series works entirety, right? Uh, those two drills are very much constrained in the sense that we're kind of constructing a position in the body and then making you kind of work around it. Um, and as we get towards the end of it, we go from the most constrained positions to the least constrained positions. Um, so you're going reverse throw, uh, pivot pick. Um, back then it used to be the rocker throw. Um, nowadays it's a little bit more, you know, we lean towards the step back as something that's a little bit more athletic and trying to get a little bit more, I think, you know, a little hip hinge, uh, you know, a little bit of stabilization and get the glute going. Uh, again, this whole muscle activation, activation, stabilization thing. I know that it's a little bit salad, I'm aware, but hopefully we're on the same page there. So the step back, um, the roll-in, you know, for, for my son, um, you know, we try to do the roll-ins all the time because he's been doing this stuff now for, gosh, going on almost three years. Um, with, with a lot of young kids, especially in the rec season or the rec setting, sometimes I take the roll-in away at the beginning of the year just because it tends to blend into the walking windup because some kids are going to have a hard time understanding that with the roll-in, we're trying to kind of maintain, you know, the lower half directed at target and, and separating the top half for the way that we uh, separate, right? Um, but now with him, you know, he's, he's got a lot of time under tension doing this stuff. So it's the, uh, the roll-in and then the walking windup. And the walking windup is essentially, you know, the least, the least constrained one. Um, what age did he add, start adding in the wrist weights? Um, we've always done, we always did the wrist weights at driveline. Um, it wasn't until, um, you know, the last year or so that we made that a part of also kind of our rec stuff and, and for him getting prepped for his travel ball team. Um, and then obviously over the course of the la last, you know, six months during COVID before we shut down on the throwing side of things, um, the wrist weights began to be really integral. Um, you know, famously, I think at one point Kyle was asked, uh, you know, if, if driveline was on fire, like what's the one thing that you would save? And he said, uh, wrist weights. Um, that was probably before we had kind of the facility that we have now and, and the game has probably changed, but, um, but the wrist weights are also great for a lot of that stuff too. Again, like trying to strengthen the posterior shoulder, um, strengthen the flexor pronator mass that we believe to be involved with protecting the UCL. That's a good thing. Um, you know, trying to develop some of the natural pronation patterns that happen when we're throwing is a good thing. Um, and just trying to also develop strength in, you know, in all of those tiny little shoulder stabilizer muscles involved with something like the Cuban press. Um, you know, we, we feel really strongly about kind of the benefit of that stuff now. Uh, I will say, though, it's the, one, it's the one kind of part of the series where 
Um, I, I tell a lot of guys that like the whole goal of why we do wrist weights is we're trying to drive uh, strength to a lot of the areas of the shoulder. Um, the typically the only way that guys do that is with dumbbells. Uh, and the problem with the dumbbell is when I'm grabbing it with a closed fist, I'm automatically kind of constricting some amount of return blood flow to the, to the area that I'm really trying to work on. So with wrist weights, it's super important that like guys actually have them on tight enough so that they don't have to hold them with their hands. Um, which is when you're working with young kids is something that needs a lot of, you know, a lot of help. Um, but also it's just, uh, something that we feel really strongly has a lot of just overall athletic benefit to, to kids. It's just going to help you in a number of ways. Have you ever used the smaller ankle weights for the younger kids? Um, I don't know that I have. Usually the way that we, we kind of modify those is just reducing the rep range, right? So like, you know, my, again, like my kids are, are pretty good. My daughter and my son, um, you know, 10 sets of wrist weights with the youth stuff is kind of a walk in the park at this point. And I'm literally trying to kind of make a decision about when we move them up to the adult wrist weights, or maybe I just don't, you know, until, I, cause that's the other thing, right? You don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. Um, but for young kids, I, 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 we just had our academy coaches meeting, our first one last Thursday, and I was telling our coaches, it's like, um, we're trying to get blood flow, muscle activation, and stabilization. Um, we don't need to be strict about when we're starting implementation about having 10 reps be like the goal. Because what I don't want to do is I don't want to drive kids into something that, that kind of is like uh, the next door neighbor of fatigue right before we're going to start throwing. So it's, it's a lot of times it's just like, you know, keeping eyes on them, uh, making sure that our posture looks good. We're kind of not hiking up the, the shoulders and the traps to get through it. Um, and if we're doing those things well, and if we get like five of those reps that are really clean and we need to cut it at rep six, that's fine. You know, that's, that's totally fine because we've achieved our goal. We've done something that's kind of lightly strength related and we've got like the motor starting to move, you know, and that's, and that's kind of what we want to do going into throwing as opposed to like open the door to fatigue. What other type of strength training are you doing with them in the facility with the younger kids, with youth kids? Um, it starts kind of trying to, to focus a lot on kind of movement competence. Um, really, really core stuff. You know, we, we have like a 5,000 square foot full Soranex setup at this point. Um, and, you know, and it's like, you know, we've got motion capture in our high performance rack. We've got force plates on the floor. Like we've got all these toys, right? And we had our first team meeting last night with our, our 16U team. And I, I just saw some of the kids and they're like looking over at the weight room, like, oh boy, it looks like it's a lot of fun in there. And it's like, yes, I want you to equate fun and growth into that room. However, if you can't give me like a solid hip hinge with no load, you're not ready. If you can't have a good air squat or a squat with like minimal amounts of load where you can kind of maintain a postural control, get good depth, you're not kind of over your toes, we're just not ready for that, right? So we start with a lot of kind of movement competence to try to get that stuff established. Any um, overhead squat? Um, I would like to say that we want to get there with our younger kids, or I'm sorry, pause. We want to get there with our older kids, right? Uh, with our older kids, um, you know, overhead squatting is something that I'd like us to get to by the end of the year. Um, but we need to uh, check a lot of boxes before we get there to feel really confident that we're in a good place. Um, so what's you know, the that, start that... of the calendar then for you? I mean, if you're going to lay out the whole 12 months, yep. where do you, where do you start the programming portion of it for everybody? 
Uh, it starts next Monday. Uh, okay, so, we so start you're right. October, a, so right at first yep. week of October. Yeah, so we start an we start our off season training in October, and we're essentially going to run that playbook from October through February. Um, so that's about a twenty week cycle, um, and in that twenty weeks, there's kind of um, three distinct phases. I guess four in total. Four really distinct. This all age groups, so high school on down. Yep. Um, so that first four weeks for us is kind of what we call our onboarding, right? Um, and especially in 2020, kids are coming to us with really high degrees of variance in like how much they threw this year. You're going to have some kids whose parents, um, you know, God bless them, sent them to all ends of the earth, try to get in games this year. And, and I, I mean, that's, that's kind of a separate conversation, the, the impetus behind that. But um, so you've got those kids and then you've got some other kids who like, um, man, they might've played in a tournament or some games in like February and March, and they haven't done anything since then. Or you've had other kids kind of like my kids who have, um, you know, they haven't had a lot of competition throwing, but we stayed active, you know, we, cause we didn't know kind of what was going to happen. So um, for us in the Academy side, that first four weeks of onboarding um, is the time that we kind of get kids reacclimated to throwing. Uh, we really focus on kind of uh, technical parts of proficiency of performing the drills um, in a relatively kind of lower intense setting, right? So you're probably, you know, we want them to probably be no more than 70 to 80% throws during the course of that month. Um, What's the youngest age that's walking through the doors? We have a nine U team this year. Okay. Um, I, I did not think that we were going to have a nine U team, um, but my good friend, Kyle Roberts, um, we've had uh, one of his sons, Nolan, has been with us for the last, uh, I think the last two um, off-season training cycles. And Nolan's great. Um, and Kyle was coaching his son, his younger son's team as well, in addition to, to working Nolan's team. So once we announced kind of that we were going to do teams, um, he asked me if, if we'd be interested in kind of taking over their nine-year team because they had an intact group of kids, a bunch of good families, a bunch of good kids. And I was just like, you know, uh, I know that it can be a little bit of a zoo when you've got like nine-year-olds and you're teaching J-bands too. Like I've, I've been there and done that. Um, but the great thing is, is that it's like, um, man, maybe we don't get to like 80 grade J band execution in year one. Um, what we can do, however, is make sure that these kids have a ton of fun and we orient our entire team structure. on I think the things are going to set them up for success moving into year into next year. Right. So for the nine year olds, it's like first year kid pitch and man, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a wild environment, right? Uh, you know, maybe 30% strike rate, maybe, you know, like, uh, it's just going to be. That's great. Uh, if you're getting 30% right. strikes with nine-year-olds, that's pretty good, actually. Yeah, well, and maybe, you know, maybe I'm getting overly optimistic. It could be a little bit more challenging that, but that's, but that's fine. Uh, because those are the kids who I would love to, to um, I feel very confident that we're going to be able to send that signal to those kids that it's like, look, man, uh, it's okay we're this is year one for this thing it is okay well yeah and let's I'll, take let's take one out of three and try to get it to two out of four and sure you know, and try to build that up it's baby steps I get I get calls all the time from youth coaches and they're pulling their hair out and I'm like hey just track your strikes and next outing try to get one more strike as a staff than you did the game before and like play it that way um you know that way kids are, are focused more on the improvement side of things rather than you know, we didn't throw too many strikes today. You know, it's, there's ways that you can, you can factor that in and, and help kids understand that it's about the small improvements more than, you know. And big leaguers don't throw a lot of strikes now, by the way, either. Right. I mean, when you look I mean, at the strike percentage of the big leagues, like they do strike a lot of guys out, but 
they don't throw they don't pound a ton of it in there anymore like it's just where we're at yeah i mean i, I think i read something the other day um, that said like the average mislocation at the mlb level was something like 11 11.4 inches or something like that and it's like and simultaneously you know you have a lot of coaches that are talking to like 10 year olds about trying to work you know work the inside and outside corner it's like uh man you kind of might be laying a trap for that kid uh, because I think oftentimes when kids get that type of instruction, uh, they're, you know, kids aren't small adults. Um, they're not as good as, as older athletes are at controlling their bodies at their proprioceptive development. Uh, like they're just, they're at the start of their journey. Right. Um, and then, so a lot of times the way that they try to solve those problems is they get real linear and pushy, uh, and they try to kind of dart throw. For sure. And, and, and same then, thing with partner catch too. And that's what I was oh, going to yeah. ask you. You know, how much of your throwing when you're with the young guys is them throwing, you know, not partner catch, and then how much is partner catch with them? Because, one, you may have a mismatch. You're going to see it, you know, with the nine U's. You're going to have one kid who's overdeveloped, one kid who's underdeveloped. The, the kid may be worried more about hurting his partner than he is, yep. you know, playing catch, and also then you're trying to hit spots. So guys do work themselves. You know, kids work themselves into some bad mechanics at times because yeah. of all those factors where, you know what, go throw into a wall, which we all did as, as young kids anyway. Right. We all had a tennis ball that we threw into a box on the garage. So yeah, you might be hitting a spot, but you weren't worried about hurting the wood or the concrete. You could throw it as hard as you wanted into a, a box and try to hit the box rather than trying to play catch with a partner as well. Right. And I think that as hard as you wanted part of kind of the throwing intensity is really, really critical. Um, you know, one of the things we broadly try to try to understand when it comes to the academy structure is just like, man, um, you don't learn how to sprint by jogging. Like you learn how to sprint by sprinting. Um, if you put a kid in an environment where there's like another, you know, underdeveloped nine year old on the other side of them and it's like their little buddy and they don't want to hurt them. It's very uh, logical to kind of understand why they get real pushy, right? They just kind of get real linear. There's no, it's not athletic because they don't want to hurt their friend. Or, um, you know, if you do like the partner, like the partner catch play line and there's like dads or moms that are on either side of the line and they're trying to like corral the balls that get just kind of zooed all over the place. Yeah, it's pitch and fetch then. Right. In the moment that like, you know, mom or dad starts to get frustrated, it's like, Hey, like, can you catch the ball? man, you got to understand that the reverberation of that particular comment is not going to be limited to one athlete. It's going to be everybody in the vicinity. And if the signal that they get is like, uh, the adult that I look up to doesn't like it when, um, when like I don't catch or like the ball gets missed or zoot or whatever. Again, what the, the environmental signal that we're sending to them is going to incentivize them to pull motor output off the table and try to prioritize accuracy. And I'm, I'm not saying that accuracy is bad. Obviously, I'm not either, but, but you're going to get more accurate by having a, a good natural arm action with intent. Like you're going to hit more of your spots with that. By the way, I mean, how much wiffle ball did you play growing up? Me personally? Yeah. Uh, I mean, every single weekend that I was with my cousins. That's where like, we learned how to throw hard because, by yep. the way, you would play pegs. And yep. so – you're going to try to hit somebody. And if you're playing with buddies that you're tight with, you're going to try to hit them as hard as you can. So you're hitting a moving target and you're trying yeah. to throw hard at a moving target because you know, a wiffle ball is going to maybe sting, but yep. it's not going to injure somebody. So 
that that's where you learn to throw with intent with some accuracy is playing wiffle ball in the backyard and you're trying to hit guys I mean, every single elementary school recess, we were playing the smear game, right? I mean, that's what we called it in Northwest, and you're trying to just make your buddy wear one. And if you want to get technical about it, what are we doing? We're taking an underload ball, right? Because five-ounce baseballs aren't magic. We're taking an underload ball, uh, and we're throwing it as hard as we can. <laughs> and, like, and, and, you know, and to a larger degree, I mean, you are what you do. And if what you do is, let's not even call it train, let's call it play in that type of environment, you're gonna cultivate a set of kind of mechanical solutions, um, a fairly wide range of mechanical solutions um, that resemble that goal. Um, on the other hand, right, if you have partner catch play and mom or dad are giving you kind of mean looks every time a ball gets kind of zooed all over the place, well that, I mean, you're gonna orient away from that thing that doesn't make you feel good. So you're going to start to focus on like, man, I got to locate, I got to get accurate. And, and, and these are kids, you know, it's, it's, it's just a different, it's a completely different animal when you're talking about prepubescent um, athletes, because a lot of these things at a biological level is just, just generally not how they present. And for sure you have outliers, but most of them uh, are kids. Um, so it, it kind of, if you think about it, it goes to kind of the next natural progression down the line is of like, well, if I understand that that's just kind of naturally how a youth, a lot of youth athletes present, right? Is that they are just not as proprioceptively uh, strength or coordination developed as they will be later. What are the things that I can do now that sets them up for success later once they start to knock down some of those blocks on the lower part of the, of the pyramid, right? And like not for nothing, that's why we decided to do teams because to get back to the original question, um, the hack, for getting away from the problems that we encountered with young athletes who would come in to train at driveline in the off season. And then the kind of the lack of fidelity between what they did with us in training and what they did on the field and the team is simply to just bridge that gap, right? Because now, now we don't have a concern about fidelity between the facility and the field, because I'm going to be the same guy where it's like, you know, last night we had our first team meeting and we finished the team meeting with like 25, 30 minutes of kids hitting on the hit tracks with the boost up to 10. And I'm challenging these kids and I'm like, I want to see somebody hit a ball a thousand feet today. And, you know, we, we got them warm, right? And then they're just in there just like trying to launch moonshots. And sometimes they swing and miss. And sometimes it's the proverbial step out of the shoes. But I'm that lunatic that's on the side of the cage. It's like, you're right there. Great swing. Because these are young athletes and I do not want to get in the way and try to coach up something that it just at a biological level they are disinclined for. Any overload or underload with the younger age groups with swinging a bat? Uh, last night, no, um, because it's day one, and I just don't want to put them in super deep yeah, water. Yeah, for on. sure, but you, you're, you are, are going to build up to that at some point with the younger yeah, kids. Yes, absolutely. The axe speed trainers are just meat and potatoes for us. Um, well, number one, because they work, right? Like They uh, do. I, they, I, I've said that we – we did it when I was at James Madison, 99 to 2003. Now we were taping up bats and, mm -hmm. you know, getting creative with it. We'd have different wood bats. We'd have different aluminum bats. We had, you know, it wasn't as scientific as now. We were just, we were just saying, hey, a lot of it was for general conditioning for, for guys to get used to swinging the bat. Yep. And swinging heavier bats fast, but then picking up something light. Same thing with yep. the underload ball. Um, you're picking up something light. So, I mean, we were, we were getting creative with it back then. I like now that it's, 
it's way more scientific and a lot better options for guys with axe bats. It's just, yeah. it's better options for guys now because you know exactly what the weight is with those. Yeah, and the great thing about the axe system in particular, um, and like not to say that, you know, getting after it with like a penny bat, right? I mean, man, for sure, put some, put some lead tape on your handle, for sure, do that. The great thing about the speed trainers is it's like an in-the-box system. It's overloaded on the barrel and it's overloaded on the handle. So broadly, we just know that like if you execute that program, you're going to swing the bat faster. And swinging the bat faster, if you pair that with ideal contact, means you're hitting the ball harder. And hitting the ball hard is good. Um, but beyond that, the other thing about the speed trainers that, that I just, you know, man, I, it's just my experience with my kids that I've had in rec and my own two children and what we've done with driveline, uh, with youth training at driveline, is that there is some proprioceptive development there, right? There is uh, some research-proven principles about contextual interference and variable implement training that suggest that by swinging different, uh, you know, different weighted and different shape, uh, you know, different type of implements, that you are driving kind of that barrel awareness thing, right? Um, you know, we, I think a lot of people, you know, lament this idea that like, oh, you know, guys nowadays don't know how to hit. It's like, well, um, yes, we are training kids to just like hit nukes, man. Like, yes, I want you to do that, but I also want you to be adjustable because sometimes you're gonna get beat and sometimes you're gonna have to adjust and find a way to get a barrel because you've already committed in your swing or it's too close to take, right? And or the, the situation you, dictates that you don't have to hit a nuke. Sure, sure, absolutely. And the way that you maximize your chances of success uh, in that particular condition set is moving the bat fast, which in a, in a quite literal sense, like bat speed allows you to be a little bit later, right? And Well, yeah, and you like, have more time to see the ball then. Right. And, and two, you know, when we're trying to drive proprioceptive awareness, uh, you know, it's like, okay, man, I, I thought that thing, that ball was going to be here. It's now there. And moving incredibly fast, I need to be adjustable. Well, how do we train that, right? Uh, man, contextual interference is a real thing. And, uh, and understand that, like, uh, I'm not saying that Ted Williams is wrong. Like, I'm not saying that Teddy's kind of paradigm of, like, I'm going to go down and take 400 swings by myself off the tee till my hands bleed is wrong. I own at least two copies of Science of Hitting. I think I have a third buried somewhere uh, in a box. So I'm not saying that Ted was wrong. However, what I am saying is when it comes to younger kids, if we're trying to drive some of these things, try to drive barrel awareness and bat speed, um, man, maybe rather than just swinging the gamer over and over and over and over, swing something different. And if you get that different in terms of weight distribution and length, I think that there's a lot of benefit for kids um, that will translate to the gamer. Um, but for a lot of people, that's just kind of counterintuitive because Man, I've gone pretty far. You always the switch hole between and... aluminum and wood back in the day. It's the same yeah. thing. Like you went back and forth between different sizes, different weights. Like it just, it looks fancier now, but people have always been doing that. You always hit with aluminum for a while and then you'd pick a wood bat up and hit that for a while. Like it's, it's been going on for a, a long time. Absolutely. But I think a lot of, you know, I think at the upper echelons of some sides of travel ball, you know, it's like I'm jumping behind or jumping back and forth between like my $1,500 U-trip bat and my $700 USA bat. Um, and both of those things are like are pretty close to each other in terms of, you know, length and weight and weight distribution. And, and this is I if you want to like really go down a deep dark hole, look at, start looking up like moment of inertia as it pertains to like bat size and weights and like you're just going to get your brain wrecked. But anyways, yeah, a lot of kids, they don't have like the drop 10 wood 
and then the drop eight aluminum. You know, it's just like two aluminum bats that are very, that are structurally pretty similar. It's just a performance difference. And that's not getting you that benefit of like going from one implement to another that are very distinct in their profiles. So the October to February calendar, when will they really start picking a ball back up to throw? Um, or is it the entire time that we're just still moving a little bit to try to build up to when we're going to start playing? We'll, we'll have just some five ounce, uh, you know, simulated long toss in the facility from jump. Um, you know, so during that onboarding phase, you know, we're, we're kind of uh, reacclimating to throwing, uh, focusing on kind of technical proficiency of the drills um, at a relatively reduced kind of uh, RPE or rate of perceived exertion basically just means that like if 100% throw is me going full Trevor Bauer yell scream as I throw, uh, man, I want you to live at about 70 or 80%. I need you to take some time off from that. How are you doing that with the younger age kids? Are you doing that with radar gun? Um, How are you, how are you allowing them to kind of feel what their, their, their effort level is? You know, it's an interesting thing. I think a lot of people, when you put guns, you know, radar guns in front of kids, there's this automatic concern that like, uh, that the radar gun's going to make them throw hard, uh, which, you know, I think there's a little bit of a question of like, is that a bad thing? But, but to the specific point, I think, you know, speed and understanding your output um, is one way that you can modulate intensity, right? Um, so like, if I'm watching a, a, gr- a group of my kids, you know, start getting warmed up and doing their plyos, and it goes from like, you know, like a, uh, a very kind of low intent day. And then the kid like throws the blue ball 40, you know, 45 or 50 miles an hour. And they're like, oh man, I'm starting to feel good. Uh, if I've got that kid on the radar gun and I see a, I see a 50 pop and then I see a 51 pop. Hey, Timmy. Hey, Jane. I need you to pull it back a little bit. Once you try to get me one, if you get me one at 47, I'll do 10 pushups. Right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm able to observe output. Um, and I'm also to basically to construct a feedback loop for they can start to kind of learn how to have a feel. I literally had this conversation with my son on the field on Monday. Um, we had taken, you know, we had taken some time off from throwing. Um, and he, uh, and he got, he was just kind of doing his plyos for the first how time. How much in a while. time off? So how much time off did he take from throwing? Um, you know, we ended up taking, uh, I want to say close to two months this year. So pretty close to eight weeks. So it's a little bit short of the MLB pitch smart recommendation. However, um, he also only threw four innings on the bump, right? Yeah, so I mean, he, he's, he, it's fine then. Yeah, in, you know, if, if uh, what I, in a perfect world, what I would have done is I probably would have had a modus sleeve on him, um, probably like in February and March when we were training, and then I would probably be able to use that to start calculating workload throughout the year just in our training, but uh, with COVID and all that other craziness, I didn't get a chance to like really dial that process in. But, um, but anyways, yeah, he, he was just asking. And then, so we're doing our plyos and he asked me, he's like, can you get the, the radar gun out? And unfortunately I had my pocket radar in my other bag, so I didn't have it with me on the field, but it occurred to me in that moment, like he's looking for feedback, you know, he's, he's literally looking for feedback and we started talking about it. And, and a lot of times I just kind of like ask my kids questions. Then I try to just shut up and listen. And, and he said, and he's like, dad, you know, a lot of times I know that I'm trying to stay at like 70 or 80%, but he's like, I have a hard time once I get to 80 to not go a hundred. And because I didn't have, I didn't have my little pocket radar there, um, you know, to be able to give him that type of feedback. I was just like, all right, well, you know, just try to learn your feel. And, um, but I, man, I just, I think that stuff is just tremendously valuable. Um, 
so yeah, uh, off-season program for us, the four week of onboard, and then we kind of go into a throwing development phase. Uh, essentially what we're executing is the six week uh, Hacking the Kinetic Chain youth program uh, for off-season throwing, um, which is essentially just like one day a week, we are giving them uh, the opportunity to cut it loose. Um, and then the other, you know, the other days of, uh, of training during the week are to essentially just get us recovered um, get us feeling healthy and build us up for the velo for, you know, for that velo day. Um, and again, you know, I think a lot of people when they see kids doing, you know, if you call them pull downs or running guns or shuffle throws, I think a lot of times I, I tend to call them shuffle throws because when I say shuffle throws, people don't get their hackles up. Like if I say that it's a pull down. Um, but again, what did I do in elementary school? I'm throwing an underload ball. Um, and, we, and we know through, you know, biomechanics that throwing underload, the, there's more force uh, on the joints. I'm throwing an underloaded tennis ball at my buddy to try to make sure that he's wearing a welt on his back. And I'm doing that like an infinite number of reps over the entire recess, probably five days a week. Uh, when it comes to the shuffle throws that we do, the high intent days, um, whether it's youth or whether it's, um, you know, or older athletes, it's once a week. It's a very set number of, of repetitions and sets. And then we have recovery to essentially uh, bridge between that high intent day and the next high intent day, right? We, we can't do like infinite pull downs or infinite shuffle throws um, without adequate uh, recovery days in the middle. So what's the recovery day look like for you guys with the younger kids? Again, it's, it's that really kind of lower intent of like seven, 80% day. Um, you know, we're going to be a little bit uh, lighter on reps. Um, and it's, and it's the typical stuff that's meat and potatoes for us, right? So it's the, it's the J band warm up series, the wrist weight warm ups, the plyo drills, then you're going to throw the ball hard, uh, and then we're going to get into a recovery. So that's the, um, the rebounder throws into the middle, little mini trampoline, um, you know, shoulder tube, if we have it to try to get some of that, you know, some of the, the little stabilizers or muscles in the shoulder, um, the kettlebell, the, the waiter walk, right? So I'm trying to, I love the waiter that. walk. Right. Um, and, and a little bit of band work as we cool down. And it's just, um, you know, there's not much that I'm dogmatic about. I, I kind of presume that like, I don't know much about anything. And, you know, if, I mean, if we have this conversation two years from now, there's a high likelihood that there's gonna be some stuff that I thought that was like really good today, that in two years from now, I'm just completely out on. Um, but arm care in terms of uh, J bands and wrist weights, and the plyo drills to kind of as is like a complete total mechanism for driving arm health and throwing mechanics is just the one thing that I am just dogmatic about because um, not only because I have like a, a large sample size of proof of knowing how that works for our athletes in driveline, but I also have uh, a smaller sample size confirmed through biomechanics uh, of young kids. Some of them are my own and some of them are younger athletes who've had a driveline for a long period of time. Um, but I have proof of it through mocap because I'm not guessing. Um, and I think, you know, I, I've, I've posted videos of like my kid doing mocap and, um, you know, somebody's, you know, they see like an 11 year old that's got these tiny little markers on their body and it's, um, you know, people kind of get their, uh, their shorts in a bunch and, and I, and I get it, but I also want people to understand, like understand my impetus as a parent. Uh, I have two children who just want to be as good as they can at the game. And uh, I want them to get as most value as possible as they can out of their, you know, their lives, right? Of their athletic lives and their lives in general. I want them to be happy and healthy. And for us, training in this system is, is what gives me the freedom to, to know that like when my kids go out and play the game and they're going to play it hard, 
uh, I don't really have concerns about their arm health because I know that they've trained at a level, uh, you know, at or above what they're going to have in gameplay. So if I know that that's kind of where they are on training stimulus, um, the only question is, is just making sure that we don't blow them out of the water in terms of innings pitched or games played in a calendar year, which is a whole other reason for why we started the academy, but we can get into that if you want. Are you seeing any differences? So 11-year-old mocap, any difference than when a big leaguer comes in and, and mocaps? Is it, is it movement, movement, or is it a little different because they're not physically strong yet? Are, they, are there some differences with motion capture with the younger kids? I mean, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely, um, it's a very distinctly different process, right? Like, um, you know, you can pick a big leaguer that's come up and worked with, um, worked with our trainers, guys that are much smarter and much more qualified to talk about this stuff than I am. So general caveat, I'm not a biomechanist. I don't train Clayton Kershaw. Like I'm not that guy. However, um, when we do, you know, biomechanics with those type of guys, it allows us to observe how athletes move in a quantifiable sense, right? The, the general idea is just like that my eyes aren't good enough. Um, and there's, there's going to be information that I want to discern about how a guy moves that I can directly translate into things that we focus on in training, right? Because I've, I've used that quantified information to inform myself as a coach, how I can help an athlete. With young kids, it's a little bit different because the only things that I tend to look for, it's like a pre and post snapshot. So we're gonna do one biomechanics assessment uh, at the beginning of training, so post onboarding, uh, because I wanna give them the freedom to throw hard, but I can't do that on day one because we haven't reacclimated, right? Um, so to do this smartly, we need to take some time to get kids reacclimated to throwing. Then when we feel confident that I can get them in a biomechanics lab and having them throw the ball hard, um, that's sample one, right? And then we're going to do another four months of training, or now that we have the academy, we're going to have almost nine months of training or nine to 10 months of training and competition. And then we're going to mocap at the end. And at the end, now I have quantifiable evidence of what's taken place. Um, and there's really just two things that I pay attention to um, when it comes to motion capture for kids, um, but it's also applicable to older athletes, which is what is our performance relative the amount of load and stress that we put at the joint level? Um, again, huge disclaimer, I'm not Anthony Brady, I'm not uh, Gretchen, I'm not Ra Rachel Balkovich, I'm not Kyle Lindley, I'm not a biomechanist. Those people are much smarter about this stuff. However, um, what we generally see is we see performance go up, right? Which is to say the kids are throwing the ball harder. Throwing the ball hard is good. What we also want to see is we want to see a reduction of stress at the joint level with increases of performance. Um, and that's what we've seen with older athletes. And that's the exact same thing that I've seen with a smaller sample size of young athletes. So we see, you know, essentially performance goes up and torque at the joint level goes down. Um, torque at the joint level is not perfect. Um, one of the things that, that is being worked on and we're working on it as well is this idea behind computed muscle control and being able to understand in a, in a quantifiable sense how muscles, tendons, and ligaments are involved with both uh, force production, force stabilization, and, and acceptance in the throw, right? We're not there yet. However, um, in our motion capture lab, you know, at 48 different joint points, we have sub-millimeter accuracy about how people move, which is to say it's pretty darn good. Um, you know, we get the speed and angle at the joints from that process, and we can do a little bit of math and calculate torque at the joint level. Um, and what I've seen, um, you know, with a small sample size of my own two kids and some other kids that have been with us for a long enough time over, you know, 18 to 24 months 
is we see uh, torque at the joint level going down as the throwing performance goes up. Now, um, that should be I, the case, right? As they move more efficiently, it should be less stressful, correct? Correct. Which gets into this, you know, this whole thing about like, what are good mechanics? Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that the best mechanics are being able to throw as fast as possible with the least amount of stress on your body, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing that I think a lot of like, uh, you know, your, your average Sunday night baseball broadcaster is going to talk about a guy who's got like easy, you know, easy velocity, right? Or, or clean and good mechanics. The problem is, is that, is that human beings are just so biologically individual that what's good mechanics for me might not necessarily be good mechanics for you, might not necessarily be good mechanics for literal my own children. You know, my, my body doesn't work the same way that my kids' bodies works. Well, and um, same thing on the, uh, the Olympic sprinting side is look at Michael Johnson. Michael Johnson ran way different than anybody else, and it worked for him. You know, and, and so you see it with runners, too. I mean, some guys run smooth, and you look up, and it's a 6.360, and right. some guys look like they're really working for it, and it's an 8.560. Like, you're going to see right. it on the running side as well. Right. And, you know, and I, man, I, 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 I spend a lot of time thinking about, like, how we've ended up here. Um, I think at a base level, we're parents and we, we just want the best for our kids, right? And, and what's the best that my kids can have? Well, I want them to be safe, first of all, and I want them to perform as best as they can. And I think a lot of times parents lean towards seeing the pathway for that being good mechanics, right? Good mechanics should solve for both of those things. The problem is, I think often we just don't know what good mechanics really are. Uh, you know, you can have some kids that are like successful throwers um, with like a low three-quarter slot. But if you run into a coach who's had previous experience with a guy who kind of looked a little bit low three quarters and maybe that guy got dinged up, they're just going to be like, hey, look, you can't throw that. I need you to be over the top now. Well, maybe if that's just the way that that kid's body's supposed to move. And the, and the thing is, is that in the Northwest here, we have a really extreme example of that in Tim Lincecum, right? Uh, Tim Lincecum. Pinwheel. Man, right, yeah. I mean, you're, you're talking about guys who like, man, there aren't a lot of guys that move like them. And, and I kind of look at this from the standpoint of like thinking about Timmy and his, and his parents, man, because you know that they had to go places to throw and you know that they went to camps and you know that he threw pens for guys and they were like, you can't do that. Well, uh, two Golden Spikes, right? Uh, two Cy Youngs and a couple World Series rings. Like, man, there's no way that anybody would look at that guy and like, oh, well, you know, those mechanics didn't work out for him. Like, I mean, honestly, you know, what are we talking about? But, but I get it, you know, because I think a lot of us, you know, we just, you know, you look at a guy, you know, pick a guy, right? Depending on how old you are, you're going to have a guy that you, you know, idolize, whether it's Bob Feller or Sandy Koufax or Nolan Ryan or uh, like you can just pick a guy or Garrett Cole and be like, well, that's how you need to move. And it's like, man, that's how that guy moves. And what I want you to understand is if you simply give your kid a system to prioritize arm health for throwing warm up and throwing recovery. And in the middle, you have them some periods of time where you give them the freedom to move fast. And if they occasionally like zoo a ball someplace that you don't like immediately jump down their throats and be like, man, you got to correct this. You got to correct this. You got to correct that. Understand you're talking about a prepubescent youth athlete who the moment that I start talking to them about cues and fixes, man, the, the list of things that I need to control for is like a mile long are the words that I'm using literally words that they understand. If they understand them, are they words 
that mean the same thing to me as they do to them? Are they able to take these words or cues or whatever and turn them into a new movement? And even if that happens, are they able to discern the difference between the bad one and the good one? And if they're able to discern that difference, are they able to like lock that away? You know, there's a reason that we don't do pitch design with like 10 year olds. You know, I, 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 I don't, I, I haven't done pitch design with either one of my kids. I have access to the entire candy store. Why? Because I just don't believe that there's any way that they're going to be able to sit down with a Rob Hill or an Eric Jagers or a Spencer Medic or Sammy or any of our guys and start talking about pitch design and be able to internalize that stuff because they're children. Um, so what does that tell you about this idea that we could like cue a kid into a place of like, I understand certainly sometimes cues work, but I think a lot of times for parents, we just, it's like, we try to just fix everything instead of accepting this idea that they just need space to kind of figuring out how them, how they do it by themselves. And the best type of space we can give them is not just like this complete free reign, like, uh, well, self-organization is just going to happen, right? That's not a solution. And that's not something that's structurally that helps me as a coach. What I need is a system. I need you, I need a system of drills and constraints and games that give them the space to kind of find those things uh, around like a very simple like intention action relationship, right? Um, your intention is to throw the ball hard and your action should resemble that. Your intention should be to throw the ball hard within a certain degree of accuracy and your action should resemble that. Um, and we can give kids those type of systems and we can give them that type of feedback as it relates to performance and either encourage them when they've unlocked a new PR and you've thrown the ball harder than you ever have before. Great. I want you to feel validated in that effort because you should, we, we should be celebrating that, right? If, if you were in math class and everything you got was like three stars out of four and the moment you bring home that four star report card as parents, what are we doing? We incentivize that, right? Well, velocity on the throwing side is something that I can use that for a young athlete and give them validation outside of a box score. It also is a mechanism for me being like, hey, today's an 80% day. You just PR'd and threw a ball 63 miles an hour today. I just saw you throw the gray ball 68. Let's pull the reins back, right? Um, which I think more broadly, I just, I, I, I think uh, it's, it's really important for us to help parents and coaches understand how technology is not your enemy. It's a tool to, to help you ask and answer better questions for your athletes. For sure. So you get through the, to February and you guys start playing. How much are you guys competing? How much are you practicing? You know, what's the ratio for your age groups as far as practice to competing? Sure. Um, so there's a giant asterisk about kind of our COVID side of things. I'll get to that last. Uh, when it comes for our 12 and under group, we really want to encourage them to actually, actually go play recreational baseball because I believe in the social emotional value of kids playing with their friends, the kids they go to school with, the kids they go to church with, the kids in their neighborhood. And if the worst case scenario of that configuration is that like this kid trains with us off season for five months and then they step on the rec baseball field and they feel like 10 feet tall and bulletproof, I'm very much in on that because during the recreational baseball season, we're gonna probably practice, you know, probably once, once maybe twice a month, and we're probably going to try to squeeze in a couple tournaments around their rec baseball season. Um, and then once they finish their all-stars for rec, then we're going to kind of have the majority of kind of our tournament season. Um, and, and it's that phase of our season that we call kind of our performance phase. Any tournaments that we do in February, March, April, 
uh, that's kind of more of an exploratory phase. Uh, so the idea is, is that, man, I probably know who my starting shortstop is in February. I probably actually know in the academy who my starting shortstop was probably in October. But in January, February, March, and April, uh, the goal of the training is to take advantage of the exploratory opportunity. And man, I want to take that kid who's a career right fielder and give them a couple innings at shortstop, especially when they're young, right? Because a lot of times they think that if they're getting put out in the outfield, it's like it's a penalty. Uh, because a lot of times there's nothing to do out there. The ball isn't hit that hard. So they kind of just go out there and just kind of like turn the brain off, right? They disengage from the game. And then a ball actually gets hit to them. And they're like, oh, geez, what am I supposed to do? I got like, I got to try to figure this out. Uh, if I take the career right fielder and I have them play two innings at shortstop, what's the worst thing that can happen? Maybe they boot a ball or whatever, right? Well, it's February, March, or April. A, who cares? But B, if that young athlete starts to learn, man, I have to pay so much more attention playing shortstop. I got to be in communication with my infield. I need to watch the tendencies of my pitcher. I need to watch the tendencies of the hitter. I need to look at like how my infield is structured and I have to be attached to the game on a pitch by pitch basis. We're going to get to our performance phase in June and July. And if they carry that outlook from what they learn in February, March, and April into like a tournament that we really, really want to win in July, that's still a win for me developmentally. Um, but so that's the, the 12 U group is right. Is essentially we're, we're going to do a lot of off season training. We sprinkle in some, um, some games during their rec season, not a ton. And then we kind of have our final performance phase of the year. And those are the tournaments we actually kind of care about. So in total, uh, in terms of gameplay, what that should give us is probably around 50 ish games, um, which for a kid that's 12 and under, I think is a totally reasonable volume of games, especially when you consider training on top of that and probably some scrimmages too. Um, Man, I, I remember looking at somebody's like, you know, 11U national ranking list a couple years ago, and then it was a team that played somewhere in excess of 100 games. And look, you take 100 games and you multiply by six, assuming they're playing around six innings, right? Maybe they, maybe they tend to run some guys. So you're anywhere from like 550 to 600, 600 innings in a calendar year. Is that 600 innings that's just getting distributed against a roster of like 14 of 16? Most of the time, not. Most of the time, those teams are running away that they probably have four or five horses that are wearing those innings. So you take those 600 innings, you divide that by four or five athletes, and compare that number against the MLB Pitch Smart recommendation for in-calendar year throwing. You've blown that entirely out of the water. Um, so what we try to do is orient much more on the developmental side and then using competition as the way to kind of stress test what we're working on uh, in training. Uh, for the 13 and up kids, it's a little bit different. Um, what we're trying to do with them is we're going to do the same off-season program from October through February. Uh, during that period of time, we have a throwing on board, uh, throwing development phase, hitting development phase, and then a kind of a final blend to competition. And that's the part where we start to orient a lot more towards the competition side to get them ready. We're going to finalize that with a tournament. And the idea is, is that whether we win that tournament or lose it, I'm going to learn some stuff that I need to work on. Some of that's going to be individual. Some of that's going to be uh, situational stuff. Some of that's going to be some kind of team play, right? But if I don't take the time to work on it, I'm going to wear those exact same warts into the next tournament. So for us, uh, from the 13 and up kids, essentially we're doing uh, test and retest when it comes to competition. We're going to play a tournament. We're going to figure out some stuff to work on. We're going to take probably two to three weeks to focus on it. And then we're going to go play again. 
And then we get to ask that question, did we solve the things that we wanted to work on? Well, if the answer is yes, then we just move one step up the pyramid. If the answer is no, then we have another two or three weeks to work on it. But the idea is, is that it's like, man, I just know, I know that Tim Corbin doesn't care if my 15U team goes undefeated this year. He just doesn't care. I, I know that Eric Backich does not care uh, what if we win like the, the Northwest Regional Championships. He does not care. And if I know that guys at that level of things don't care, then it should give me the freedom to construct a program that revolves around harnessing every single developmental opportunity I have for these kids, both at an individual level and then how we develop as a team. But I gotta have a, I gotta have a structure to my schedule that actually allows for that to happen. So that's why we, um, you know, we look to that. So for those older kids, um, you know, they're probably getting somewhere between maybe the 60 to 70-ish games um, that I would think in total, um, especially with the older kids if they mix in high school baseball. Um, which is going to be, uh, you know, a little bit of a weird thing this year for us. Um, but in total, it, for, for kind of all of our teams, it's that blend of competition and training. And once we get into the competition phase, literally having time to just put discrete focuses on the things that we need to work on. Um, you know, because if you're that kid who's just like, man, I just keep getting burned on inside fastballs and I can't lay off of them and I can't sniff it with a barrel, if, if you do that on Tuesday and then you play another game on Saturday, how much time have you had to actually focus on that thing? How, how much opportunity did you really get a chance to like break that thing down? Um, so we had to construct a schedule uh, that reflected that, um, which is again, it's just like why we had to run teams, especially now that we have the new facility to actually have space to do it because with 42,000 square feet, uh, I got a lot of room to play with. When we had 12,000 square feet spread across three different buildings, um, a little bit different to make that happen. Uh, so it's, it's one of the real, real, you know, great things about kind of timing how it's all worked out with, with us getting the new facility and being able to run teams uh, to essentially like drive that entire ethos of, of just like really constructing a program that is not designed to suit me as a 43 year old man. And however I might feel about winning or losing a tournament or whatever uh, I'm, in my individual life, I'm a little bit of a psychopath when it comes to competition and have definitely like, man, I've had bad moments as a coach. It, it, like, it for just the dumbest things, right? Like I, we got smoked in a rec baseball game like two years ago. And I was so angry about it afterwards that after the kids left, I was literally like just hitting nukes into the forest and then got done with that and just like snapped my fungo off or, over my knee. And it's like, like, what am I doing? You know, these are like, 11, like my 10 year old son and a bunch of 11 and 12s, like, like literally what am I doing? When it comes to the academy, it's not about me. It's not about my sense of self as it pertains to whether we win or lose. It's not even about our coaches. What it is, is about our kids. And for us, man, I guarantee you, we're going to try to win every single game that we're going to play um, because I don't think it would be directionally accurate to send a signal to these kids that winning is not important because winning is important. Paired with that, though, is our ability to provide them context on both sides of the equation. Hey, we go out and win a tournament in February. That's great. I guarantee you that I have a list as long as my arm of things that we need to continue to focus on in the duration of this year. Um, we could lose a bunch of tournaments, and there are still going to be wins that we're going to be able to find within those opportunities, right? You can have a kid that goes, you know, 0 for 9 on a weekend, and if his 0 for 9 is like a bunch of hard hit balls or getting caught by the fence line, uh, Hey man, that plays because I know you're going to get stronger and I know that you're, 
your mechanical patterns are resulting in ideal bat to ball contact. You're getting on time and you're hitting the ball hard. Uh, I can go another level deep in terms of like looking at some data and look at bat speed and just be like, hey, look, man, look at your uh, average and peak bat speed over the course of this entire weekend. There's like a three degree separation between your peak and your average. What does that tell me? That tells me you're getting off your A level swing all the time. And I am the first one to like buy a kid a, a Slurpee and be like, that's awesome, regardless of, uh, regardless of outcome, right? I want to prioritize output. Because if I prioritize outcome and I try to chase that dragon, again, man, Eric Backish doesn't care, right? Mike, Marty Fox does not care. Uh, so, like, why would I chase that? As a parent, probably great for you with the facility, right? Because your kids can listen to other people about things. They don't have to listen to you, your own kids, your, your son and your daughter. It's got to be great, right? Because I don't think – I mean, I think that's the hardest thing is coaching your own kids is – generally they're not going to listen to you. So it's probably great being in the facility because they have other resources that they can go to as well. A thousand percent. You know, when we first, when I first started taking my son down a driveline and I first started taking him because uh, my daughter was in an honors program. Um, and so uh, context, we live like 45 minutes, sometimes an hour away from the facility. Uh, so when I first saw driveline I had a youth camp, um, I knew that I would have to like pull my kids out of school early in order to like make this happen. Judge me however you want for kind of constructing that, right? Um, but my daughter was in, a, in an honors program and like that just wasn't a thing. And she was also two years older. School's a little bit more serious. So my son, I talked to his teacher and it was like, hey, um, can I pull him like 15 minutes early? And she was like, last 15 minutes of school, we don't do anything, it's totally fine. Um, so we would go down there and uh, the youth hitting group um, which at the time was run by Jason Ochart, Max Gordon, Joel McKeithen, and Good Brian group. Leslie, right? Uh, Brian's with the Brewers, Joel uh, with the Phils, Ochart with the Phils, Gordo, you know, last year was uh, with Michigan. Like, um, what a crew, right? Uh, but as we would start, uh, there was a pro-hitting off-season group that was ending right before that. So... I would bring my little son in the driveline. It's like, you know, man, he thinks that I'm like, he thinks that I'm some kind of athlete and I am not because he's seen me like hit bombs and like a 200 foot fence lock. Right. Uh, but he would walk in and it's much like uh, the conversation that Mike was telling me, like when you see like Howie Kendrick walk through the, walk through the locker room and you're like, that guy's like an, an NFL, uh, you know, running back. Uh, I would bring my son in the driveline and who does he see? It's like Dan Comstock. Okay, Constock is like benching 315 for like warm up. Uh, that guy's a monster. He hits nukes. Uh, and like he gets to like see how that guy moves, right? And, and man, I'm like, what, you know, 25 years some odd plus removed from the last competitive game that I played in. I, I have no real firm recollection of what that stuff looks like. I believe now, in imprinting as well. I mean, I, yeah, man. If, if you watch it, if you get to see it, if you're around it consistently, some of that's going to rub off on you just, just by watching. You do get imprinted. Yeah, so, like, so I was able to bring him in, and I've literally got – my son's got a front row seat to, like, what pro hitters look like. And, and, I mean, like, just full stop and understand, like, literally, this is that thing that you want. And it's right there in front of you. You can watch how that goes, those guys look. You can watch how they move. You can watch their size and just see it right in front, and it's so impactful – uh, and especially to your point, because it takes me out of the equation a little bit. Uh, and that's not, that's not a bad thing. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very much aware that like 
the amount of time that I'm going to be able to extract like a lot of control over my kids' athletic lives, I mean, that's shrinking by the day because eventually, you know, my daughter is like less than two years removed from being able to drive, which is frightening and terrifying as that sounds. Um, she's going to have that opportunity at that point to make a decision about if she's driving to practice or not. It should be her choice. You know, my, my son is, is trailing right behind. Um, and they're going to be able to make those choices about going to practice, about effort at practice, about diligence, about all the other things around, sleeping, eating. Those are those, their choices to make, not mine. And I know that my days are numbered for being able to kind of like control that to a degree. So what I really want to do and have them see other people, how they go about their work, right? I, I mean, I want them to see like what professionals really do. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world for being able to work at Driveline and do youth stuff out of Driveline because, you know, my sample size of guys that all the kids in my program now have access to is a mile long. How do you balance that, though? You know, say you got kids walking in the facilities and, and there may be a big leaguer in there. How do you balance that with maybe a kid who maybe isn't growth mindseted that, like, sees them and is like, I'm terrible, I'm awful? You know, because that might be an issue with some of the younger kids. Like, they see guys and how, how great they move, and in the back of their mind, they're like, I'm, I'm brutal at, at baseball. At a, at a very basic level, I think what we really want to try to keep kids understand, and this is a little bit on the hippy-dippy side. So I'm with you. I, I'm hippy-dippy. So. <laughs> okay. Well, we're, we're going full. <laughs> we're going way into that end of the pool here. All I want kids to understand is that if you work hard at something, you will get better at it. Uh, and I think that is something that's valuable. Sure, it's valuable in sports, but it's also valuable in life, right? Like, um, man, I'm a guy who had like a, a decent career and I guess was kind of an adult, uh, saw a driveline, when it had the opportunity to like go down to the facility, meet those guys, develop relationships with them, uh, got a job in there and like uh, I, I just feel like the luckiest guy on the planet because I was able to get on board the pirate ship right and and now fortunately I've been kind of put in a position where I could steer it a little bit so creating the youth baseball development certification as a pathway to helping more moms and dads understand that like you don't need to be uh, the Rob Hill of pitching to create structure and system for your kids to make you get better and have them have fun and have you have fun with your child um, you know, we created Driveline Academy as a mechanism to make sure that we had fidelity between the stuff that we work in, work on in training and the way that we approach the game in competition, where we do not have a 3-0 take sign. I, I don't have it, and I will not have it. And I've been around youth base so long enough to understand that that's a great way for me to get a base runner. And if I get a base runner, man, it's one wild pitch or one pass ball from getting a runner from first to second to second to third, worm burner ground ball, I put a run up on the board, and that's great. The problem is, is that I just robbed a kid of a developmental opportunity to understand what happens if they get a 3-0 green light. Best case scenario, you hit a nuke. Worst case scenario, you swing at something that's up at your eyeballs. Well, man, now you come back to the dugout and we have an opportunity to have a conversation. Hey, where was that pitch? Man, I don't know, coach, it was pretty high. Okay, so when we're, like, when we're practicing to hit nukes in the facility, where, where do you, if you could give me like a dream pitch in BP, where is that pitch? I don't know, coach, it's probably like middle-middle. Okay, little Timmy, little Jane, next time you get 3-0 count, I want you to hunt middle-middle. I want you to develop an approach. And if the sooner they can start to develop that thing, as opposed to like kicking the can down the road, man, I, I know that I'm just kind of front-loading that stuff, right? But uh, The only time I ever talked about take with guys is 
because your concentration isn't split on making a swing decision, if you're having a hard time seeing the ball and you're going to, you're going to run through this as a hitter, sometimes sure. the ball looks like an aspirin Sure. where when you don't, you know, and you see it with guys and if you would give a guy a take and it's down the middle, they're going to be so mad at you, but it's going to look like a grapefruit because they're, they don't have the swing decision factor of it. So that was sure. the only time I would ever talk to guys about taking especially early in the year when you knew they were going to be antsy is like, Hey, we may take here just so you, the ball starts to look like a grapefruit again or a beach ball for you again. But yeah, ne never with the automatic takes, but just would explain it that sometimes we may have to get it in there and take a pitch in the beginning just so the ball starts to look bigger out of the hand. Yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think for us, that's the type of stuff that we focus on in that kind of like four week blend of season phase. So that when we get into competition, it's full on green light. Uh, yep. the, but the point is, is it's like, you know, we, we went from, uh, we, we started doing tryouts for our Academy team program on July 19th. Um, we had our first team meeting last night. We have more than a hundred kids in our program. We have eight teams. It's, it's well beyond, I think, what I thought we would be able to do. Uh, the Youth Baseball Development Certification, we've, we've had like 800 of them uh, that, are, that are out the door. All of those things came from working really hard and, uh, and utilizing our team and getting support from the entire like might of driveline baseball and like 80 or 90 people to push this thing forward. Um, so, I want kids to connect with that idea as early as possible because I think it continues to bring leverage to both athletics and your life as you move forward. So for us, sure, the, you know, we could have, and, and I took kids, you know, they're kids that I, that we have on academy teams who might not be in like the top quartile of all of the kids that we saw, right? You know, we, we saw somewhere in excess of 300 kids in our tryout. Um, and there are kids that I, that I, we have on a team that weren't in that top 25%. Maybe some of them weren't in the top 50%. What they were was in the top quartile of kids who had fun, who kids who didn't get discouraged if they were struggling during the tryout and they're kids that like very earnestly want to get better at the game. So for that kid, you know, little Jimmy or little Karen who like, regardless of where you are right now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to work. But we're not going to do work in a way where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, me like gritty taking like 300 hacks devoid of context by myself. Uh, we're going to work in a way where we're putting you in this gym environment where you've got uh, guys like, I mean, I, I'm the least part of the equation, right? It's our coaches and our trainers who are stewards of our culture. So it's like, man, look, if, you're, if your exit velocity is like very regressive for your age range, but you work hard and the moment that you hit a PR, you have just as much capacity and right to go ring that PR bell as, uh, as one of our pro hitters does as like, you know, and, and that's where we start to get that feedback loop, right. Of not only do you understand in a quantifiable sense that you're literally getting better. So it becomes less about like how bad I am now versus how good that guy is. And it becomes more about, man, I know that this is translating into something. And unfortunately in baseball, I think a lot of times we have a high degree of, of reliance on the box score as, as like the primary indicator of whether that's something that's going well or not. But we know that youth baseball specific, specifically at the 60 foot level is so different than 90 foot. There's a number of things that can lead you to like filling up a box score in a positive fashion that are probably like directionally opposite of what I want you to develop to be viable at 90 foot. 
But uh, again, man, you are what you do. So if the age of like, from the age of like five to 12, you kind of develop this entire like approach and skill structure uh, to the game of baseball that's designed to excel in that environment. And you think like trying to like punch backside grounders or just like finding the five, six hole is going to play once you get to 90 foot. I mean, look, uh, very naturally, the, the number of fish in the pool has shrunk. Uh, and, and just because like, you know, Johnny two left feet couldn't glove that ball uh, when you played like AAA Little League Baseball. Well, guess what? In high school, man, there's a really good kid there. And, and you know, the kid that's the shortstop on your high school team, he or she also came up as a shortstop. So they're also really good in athletic. Um, and, and, and it's just, I get worried about kids getting sold wolf tickets. Like, man, this approach to the game just doesn't scale well. And when we're talking about, you know, the 12 and under group specifically, man, that should be, it's definitely the lowest level of competition. And it for sure should be the lowest level of consequence. And if I acknowledge both of those things, if I know that like, College coaches, D1 guys, JUCO guys aren't paying attention to like the 11U um, St. Paddy's Day Invitational uh, Speak Like a Pirate Triple Black Elite Championship. They don't care. If, if I can understand that with clear eyes, then I should be able to harness the power of that experience to capture as much developmental opportunity as possible because I want them to cultivate for 90-foot baseball because 90-foot baseball is great. It's, it's the best. It's real baseball. Um, but I think a lot of times, you know, again, we're parents and we just want our kids to be safe. We want them to be physically safe and we want them to be emotionally safe. And if I perceive that my child is at like the risk of emotional danger, if they fail in baseball, well, I'm going to construct a, a set of kind of teaching and guidelines designed to orient away from failure. And if, and if that set of rules and guidelines is specifically dictated around the conditions of a 60 foot field, and I know that 90 foot is coming, man, it's just like there is, you're, it's, you've got a trap laying ahead of you. And, and, and I understand it because man, you know, uh, I've met a girl in a bar and we made people, right? Like I, I met the love of my life in a bar, uh, the place that my buddies and I watch football. Uh, we've been married for 15 years and we have two kids that like by nature and nurture, they love the game of baseball. They just want to be as good as they can. And it's very natural to understand it from that perspective where it's like you see a small version of you on the field and it's like, I don't want little me to suffer. I don't want little me to feel uh, danger or pain or, or feel sadness or failure. So I construct this whole system to try to orient around that, right? So I buy these gadgets on Facebook and I take them to pitching lessons and hitting lessons and catching lessons and we do camps and we do this whole entire thing. But if that system is just designed to like put a salve on our ability to be safe now, and it doesn't set you up for success later, it is very easy to understand why we lose like between 60 and 70% of participants between the ages of 12 and the kids that show up to high school baseball. And, and that is something where it's just like, man, if, if we can just shift that by 5% or by 10%, you're changing the ecosystem what high school programs look like. And if you change what high school looks like, that's only gonna swim upstream to what college baseball starts to look like. Um, but all of that means you have to orient away from the stuff that's, that like is designed to play now at the expense of later on development. And it also means you need to orient away from the thing that burns kids out of the game uh, by playing 100, 120 games. Sorry, my dog has made an appearance. 
That's <laughs> all right. Mine are the exact same. Uh, so anyways, that's Devin's long rant about like what we're trying to do in a, in a hippie dippy sense. I love sense. it. I love it. So that was great. Now I appreciate you coming on. Um, I, cause I've been following you on Twitter for a long time and I, I mean, it was intrigued by everything. I, you, I'm a big fan of what you guys do. Cause I think it's, it's a great blend of everything and we do need to bring the long-term athlete development piece back. Um, because again, we're, we're creating kids that are predisposed to get injured as they get older because they don't move well, they don't move efficiently. And also they, they stop playing. Um, that facility's gotta be all kinds of fun for the kids to come into and have a good time with it and feel like they're getting better, but uh, it's gotta be tremendous for them to to walk in there and and get in there and play around. Yeah. You know, gadgets are fun. It's a ton of fun. Well, yeah, and you're talking about kids, right? Kids understand yes. gamification. They understand yes. gamification recreationally, and they also understand it af- educationally, right? These kids get assessments to understand how they're doing. Um, so, you know, for, for what we're trying to do with the academy teams is, is not chase the single carrot on the single stick. Uh, if, if the carrot is winning, then, uh, and that's the way that I judge the value of my program and the value that I present to my parents well, we have to do all the things that represent that kind of value proposition, right? Um, if winning matters most and gameplay matters most, then not only do I have to construct an environment that's going to try to solve that, right? Because if, my, if we're losing, then my parents are unhappy with me. My kids are unhappy with me. I provide them no other type of developmental context on either side, right? So that means I have to run a short roster, right? I have to run a short roster because I'm essentially going to build my team like defensively one through nine, maybe one or two filler kids, like to make sure that if somebody gets sick or hurt that I, that we can still play, but I have to kind of build it one through nine. And the moment that I do that, I'm also trying to solve for having parents not be mad at me, right? Because the moment that your child is in the field and my kids on the dugout, we had this natural animosity because you and I are fighting over this single thing, this, this scarcity thing, which is innings played, innings pitched at bats, right? We have natural beef between us if your kid gets and mine kid does not. Um, I'm a big fan of the abundance, you know, viewing abundance as opposed to scarcity. Sure. I think but, it's but a in great, order to Yeah. But in order to do that, you have to kind of give them value on other sides of the equation. So for, so for us, it's like, yes, I, I guarantee you that like we will – we will do everything that we can to win every single game that we play, but we're going to harness every single developmental opportunity on the way. And then at the end of the year, because I take the opportunity to execute test and retest, and certainly uh, I'm fortunate to be able to do this in driveline because we have all the tech in the world. You can do this with a hundred dollar bat speed sensor and a $300 pocket radar. You do the exact same thing and you just show these kids, Hey, look, this is where you started when we got you in October, or if you do it in a rec baseball sense, this is how you started when we got you in February. And this is where you ended in June and July. And I am involving kids in this feedback loop to literally tell them the things that you do the most in the game of baseball, throw and hit, you got better at them. And you should, your heart should feel full because you did that. You should feel validated in the fact that you put your time and energy and effort into something that translated into quantifiable progress because kids are desperate for that. They're thirsty for that. And they get that type of feedback in other sports, right? You don't see a track practice that doesn't have a stopwatch. Well, what's the version of the stopwatch for us in baseball? 
well, I hate to break it to you, it is also a stopwatch, but it's probably also uh, a radar gun. And I don't care if it's the if it's a stalker, if it's like the fanciest stalker that you have, or the cheapest like Bushnell radar gun. Man, the broken ruler theory totally applies here. Measure, test, and retest. Hundred dollar bat sensor, test and retest. You use that same kind of beat up old radar gun and you track some degree of exit velocity, test and retest and involve these kids in the feedback loop to understand that they got better at baseball and watch how it's like registration comes up next year. And they're like, hey, mom and dad, when are baseball tryouts? Because you've given them feedback and you've given them stimulus to balance against what the box score provided, right? For sure, we want box score results. I mean, yes, like winning games is important. A box score is a really efficient way to record the outcome of that game. But I also it doesn't tell, to tell the whole people, story, though. It tells man, one one part of the the story is yep is the end result. It doesn't tell anything about how either team got there. And over the long haul, like yes, winning is important, but teams that do all the things that they're supposed to do consistently win more than team, teams that don't. Exactly, and like and, and like you said, right? You track it. You know, you, you can track quality at-bats. You can track quality pitching appearances. You go to Driveline as a free youth practice guide that has a QAB QPA sheet on it, drivelinebaseball.com. It's free. Uh, you do that type of stuff. You track situational things, right? How many times did we have uh, double play opportunities where we literally, like, were in the right positions we were communicating with each other? Man, did we turn the double? Maybe, maybe not. But what I care about is incentivizing progress. What I care about is incentivizing approach and output, and I want to balance that against the way that we value outcome, because I strongly believe that that's a mechanism for keeping kids in the game. And if we do those things and orient them around a set of skills, skills at scale, as these kids stay in the game, well, now we make it more viable for that kid to show up to their high school baseball tryout and be competitive. And instead of doing something like, you know, you show up to your high school baseball tryout, hey, you know, what do you play? I'm a left fielder. If there's a sophomore, a junior, and a senior left fielder ahead of you, you better be the best one of those three. Otherwise, you got to wait. And if you change the tone of that conversation, which means that you didn't decide at age 10 years old to just like to decide to be a PO or decide to be like a second baseman right field combo. If you just played and somebody gave you the opportunity to play a bunch of positions, what's a high school baseball coach say? Hey, kid, what do you play? Coach, I got you wherever you need. If you bring an arm and a bat to the table, that is an easy problem for a good coach to solve, even if that comes with some warts, even if that comes with some swing and miss in your game, even if that comes with you're going to zoo a ball all over the place every once in a while. A good high school baseball coach sees a kid who's ahead of the curve in terms of power output and just skill development, have four years to solve that problem. A good high school baseball coach knows that they have four years to solve that problem, and that's a four years to kind of go along with their biological inclination for development at the same degree and that same timeline, great. Man, if, if freshman starter on the varsity team isn't something that we can do, okay, maybe sophomore. You know, but we're, we're really trying to set kids up to have the most playing time experience and opportunity to impact the game once they get to 90-foot baseball. But to do that, we have to change our approach to 60-foot. Awesome. Appreciate it. Uh, Appreciate you, Ryan. You're the man. Since Driveline's big on PRs, uh, I think that was a PR on uh, the length of episode with one guest. Uh, thanks for hanging in there, and hopefully you got a lot out of it. 
We also just touched the surface on everything that you can cover with long-term athlete development and playing baseball at a young age. Uh, we're, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to using everything that is available at the youth levels. I love Devin's mission of keeping things fun and competitive. I'm excited that he's using assessments to keep kids engaged in their improvement. I can't wait to see what his research comes back with now that he's getting larger sample size of subjects. Really going to help us get to the bottom of how to keep the kids healthy playing baseball. Thanks to Matt West, Zach Hale, and John Litchfield in the ABCA office for all of their help on the podcast. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.